Hey everyone, our featured nonprofit this week is National Alliance on Mental Illness, otherwise known as NAMI. They have offices located in the United States all over the place. Their mission statement is to provide advocacy, education, support, and public awareness so that all individuals and families affected by mental illness can build better lives. If you'd like to learn more or find an office near you, feel free to check them out at NAMI.org. Welcome to another episode of Gloom Squad. Our featured guest this week is Chase, otherwise known as the wig man from his Instagram, but I know he's getting that changed here in a little while. Um, I guess I'll just kind of open up by asking you about what made you start being the wig man. Sure. So back in 2017, I was driving for Lyft and after about a year, I was super bored. And a family of passengers were like, you know, it'd be really funny if you showed up wearing a wig. I was like, that's a great idea. <laughs> so I started wearing the wig and passengers would come in the car and it's like, by the way, I'm totally wearing a wig. And it's just a joke. <laughs> and I got multiple wigs and I pulled two more out of my side, my side of my door. And it would you ever change wigs mid-drive? <laughs> I would. I would definitely swap wigs mid-drive. And stop signs and stop lights, of course, right? Always. Yes. The safest way possible. Only if it was of, of request by the passengers. I didn't okay. want to It's a de delicate dance having people in your car and entertaining them without them asking for it, right? Mm -hmm. So it would spark a lot of magic. And I, I, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And we started doing a lot of Instagram video testimonials on my, <clears throat> my account. And I got about 40 video testimonials over the course of about 10 months which are all very entertaining and a lot of great stories came of it. That's awesome. That's so fun. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then how have you kind of transitioned, I guess, um, what is, what kind of transitioned you from doing the wigs to doing mental hygiene coaching? And if you want to kind of describe what mental hygiene coaching means to you. Sure. So, so I'm very passionate about meditation and about three months into my uh, work with Lyft, I saw this video of Will Smith talking about how he wants to represent an idea. And I thought to myself, if I died, what would the one idea be for me that I leave other people thinking about as my example? And if I reflect back on the last 10, 11 years, the one thing that always helped me through every single difficult situation, emotion, decision, or transition was sitting in silence, meditation. And I put that at the center of my wheel of my world 
and six months later, the wig came into the picture. And the wig became this X factor for me in terms of a tool that I could play around with, which I thought, you know, wigs are so effective at creating this instant playful connection with people. What if you had a, <laughs> what if you put a wig on the idea of sitting in silence, which is completely ridiculous, but, um, you know, it might make the experience of sitting in silence more playful and ridiculous where people might otherwise look at it as serious or spiritual or awkward and throw bring your own wig secret silence sitting parties. Yay. <laughs> and did that, did that get like a lot of people, I guess, more interested in the meditation or kind of more into what you were doing or trying to do? Well, I was, you know, I was running all these ideas by my passengers and they, they found it entertaining, but where the real rubber met the road was I eventually thought, well, what about people who would not go to some crazy wig party to address their mental hygiene? How do you inspire them to help themselves? And this discovery resurfaced in my mind around bacteria in the 1800s was a major cause of death in hospitals. And now we see signs in restaurants and everywhere else prompting people to address their physical hygiene and wash their hands. So I thought, well, what if you prompted people at the entryway of Starbucks to check their mental hygiene at the door so that negative emotional bacteria doesn't spread? Because when you're in a bad mood, for example, your emotions have a domino effect on the world around you. And as I evolved this idea, this concept of the golden domino distilled into my imagination, which is um, a term I came up with that blends both the golden rule and the domino effect into one concept. So the golden rule, of course, is treat others the way you'd want to be treated. And the domino effect is we're all interconnected. So it goes around, comes around and mental hygiene, just as you, if you, you know, if you neglect to take after your dental hygiene, your breath smells, right. And people aren't going to overtly tell you that, but over time, if you're wondering why life doesn't want, you know, doesn't seem to be working for you and you are, refusing to brush your teeth or you're not aware that if you did it might it might fix that aspect of your social interactions um you could have a different experience of life and for me the way i think about mental hygiene is it's effectively allowing yourself to feel your emotions and process through them and process through your thoughts so that you're not projecting just like bad breath. You're not projecting that negative emotion onto the people around you. You've given yourself the opportunity to process through it. And so I launched an artist network around this concept called the golden domino network. And then I wanted to offer coaching because artists and 
creatives generally struggle with their mental health. And so what I've done is blend the tools together with coaching and mental hygiene to offer, um, you know, a suite of ideas for people to think about and implement for their uh, well-being and happiness. For me, what mental hygiene uh, encompasses is meditation, journaling, exercise, sleep, healthy eating, healthy relationships, and whatever uplifts you and keeps you in a good mood. Yeah, and that's kind of catered, I would assume that's kind of catered to the individual. Yeah, and I think that's a really kind of simplistic way to look at it. Those like metaphors and kind of comparisons that you made, I think that's a really good and easy way for people to kind of look at this and look at what you do and what mental health kind of overall is in a sense. So I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, so you're out in LA, you live out in California. Have you always lived in California? Yeah. Well, well I went to university of Miami in Florida. Okay. So nice warm weather all the time. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, did, did you kind of get into this in school too? Were you always kind of mental health conscious or was this something that kind of came on a little later in life for you? Yeah, that's a good question. When I was 21, I started getting into personal development and meditation kind of gripped me as a tool for calming my mind and processing through my emotions. And I maintain that practice for since I can, you know, since then, I generally do it about an hour to two hours a day and, uh, and journaling as well. I've been doing for about 12 years now, pretty much every day. Um, but I can't, yeah, I just can't see myself as someone without it. I can't see myself operating in the world without these tools. Um, and at the same time, when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder back in 2014, uh, I also couldn't see myself as bipolar, which is an interesting dichotomy because I was someone who was always taking care of my mental health, um, and couldn't understand how I was going to need anything more than the tools I was already using uh, because I really care about my health um, to maintain it. But uh, it's taken me about six years now to kind of fully embrace the diagnosis and be my own advocate and honor the uh, chemical imbalance in my brain enough to seek out treatment so now I'm uh, going to a psychiatrist on a weekly basis and uh, also taking medication. I feel like in the bipolar community, you kind of have to be your own advocate because I feel like, at least in my experiences, people just kind of downplay your symptoms, at least with me, they'll be like, oh, you don't seem bipolar. Oh, these aren't real. That's just kind of in your head. And it's like, no, my experiences are real and I really need help. And I feel like people with bipolar disorder really have, and other 
serious mental health disorders really have to kind of break through those stigmas and get the help that they truly need. At least that's my opinion about it. I agree. I think if you aren't your own advocate, it's, it's, it's more about what does it mean to be our own advocate? It means that we have to fully honor and accept the diagnosis. And if we aren't accepting the diagnosis, then we can't actively work towards getting better and stabilizing our mental health. And for me, I've had many manic episodes that forced me, you know, in the last few months to uh, really take this seriously. And it wasn't something that I was advocating for until it became very much a legitimate concern in my own mind. You know, it was a concern for other people, but it's like an addict. If you aren't admitting to the diagnosis, then you can't, you know, accept it and you can't move from that place of acceptance towards supporting yourself. I'll also say that when you're, when you're willing to support yourself, other people are also enthusiastically engaged in helping you get better. But if you're denying that for yourself, then it, it, it creates friction in the relationships with people who already know you need that help or treatment. And so it's, it's refined my relationships because, simply because I become my own advocate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's also kind of ties into your concept of mental hygiene, right? If, if you kind of accept it and are a positive about wanting a change or wanting help or wanting to kind of maintain where you're at and be in a good place, then that kind of pushes other people around you to, to help and support as well. So you are fairly new to the coaching idea. So you said you drove Lyft and stuff, and that's kind of where the Wigman came out of. Um, you said you were looking at changing the whole Wigman thing. Was there a certain reason for that, or is it more you just kind of want to be Chase and not known as another persona? I would say the Wigman is an alter ego for me to creatively express myself. I think when I blend that with the coaching, at least in terms of how I'm marketing myself, it becomes a distraction to the core of the message, which is mental health. And mental health, as much as it can be fun and playful, you know, we can make it into a playful thing. The message itself is very serious and I want people to take me seriously when I'm communicating about it and coaching people on it. So I've retired the wig man as the vehicle for representing or advocating or communicating the message of mental health um, for my coaching business. Um, With your coaching business, uh, are you working with all different kinds of mental illnesses? Are you open to people without mental illnesses? Yeah, you know, I, I actually would prefer most people to be without mental illness. Um, 
only because I'm not, I'm not certified in any capacity to manage uh, people in that, in that way. But um, I'm certainly open to supporting people who do have struggles with diagnosis and maybe aren't taking after the daily things they can be doing to get into the right headspace to offset whatever anxiety or other issues may be manifesting from their, um, their illness. Um, but yeah, I think that there's three things happening in coaching for me. One is taking on clients who do have some form of mental illness, but aren't looking to me as a therapist, but instead they're looking to me to hold them accountable to practices and goals that we set for them at the outset uh, that they can work towards. Then there's the, the community of people who don't have any diagnosis, who may potentially need to go into psychiatry or some other form of treatment and uh, need someone to assist them in making that transition. And then three, people who don't have any legitimate issue in that regard, but do want to have someone helping them maintain their mental hygiene and just hold them accountable to their daily practices. And you said the core of your kind of coaching is meditation. Um, how would you transition somebody to start meditation? Because I feel like some, but at least with me, when I first started meditating, it was super daunting and I didn't feel like I was doing it right. And then eventually you kind of realize there's no really right or wrong way. So I guess what are some tips that you would give people who are yeah. starting that? I love that question because there is no right way to meditate. And essentially what you're doing is manually breathing your body. And the longer you can sit in that, in that position of eyes closed, focusing on your breath, maybe even counting your breath, um, the more you allow the confetti of your mind to settle. So I like to say that your mind is like a snow globe and all day it gets shook. And meditation is the act of not doing anything. It's working with the physics of your mind to allow the chaos to fall with gravity to a settled point. Now, there's friction in meditation. It's not comfortable, right? People question why they're, what, what, what's happening, whether or not they're good at it, all these thoughts that come up as a result of just not doing anything. And the way I like to think about that phenomenon is it's as if you are sitting in a rocket ship and moving against the gravity of your thoughts and emotions. So when you sit in silence with your eyes closed, you're at the tip of that ship, that rocket ship, and it's creating friction. But as you sit, you climb against that pressure and eventually you experience what it is to be without gravity. You're floating, you're hovering above your world, 
you're able to see it from a three a, a third party perspective and that's extremely valuable especially when people are so caught up in the minutia or the compacted 3d paradigm of their own little world and so it expands their awareness it creates that sense of possibility outside of what contracted perspective they're dealing with so to get there what i recommend is taking it slow and to be easy on yourself because you can't get it right and it's you can't get it wrong so i should say you can't get it wrong it's not that i can't get it right but it's a matter of willing to start with conscious breaths as the entry point into the practice and carving out a certain amount of time each day to do so. So even if it's just a single minute, that one minute might break up the impulse to constantly perpetuate the same cycle of thoughts to swirl around your head. And if you break that with a single minute of conscious breathing, then you're letting in a possible new angle of perception into your awareness. So if meditation is kind of the base of, of what you're looking for and what you're doing here with your coaching business, obviously like not everything is for everyone, right? So I'm sure you've run into some people that are either skeptics or not big into meditation or it's just maybe not for them. Is that something that, I mean, I guess, I don't know if you've run into those people, but is that something that you have run into in the past or how exactly do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, really it's, it's meditation can be anything you want to call it. I work with clients on, I work, I, I adapt to the client's needs, but, but at the end of the day, meditation is conscious breathing. So if you're consciously breathing through an exercise routine or your cooking, uh, just as long as you set a time to be mindful of your breath, then that's, that's the start of it. Now, to get someone to sit in silence with their eyes closed is the ideal, but I can't force someone to do something they're not going to want to do or they don't do or they're not willing to do. And, and yet, you know, the the act of doing nothing is the quickest way to allowing all that confetti to settle um so yeah it's it's a choice that they have to make for themselves i think people are kind of intimidated by meditation because at least when you think of meditation right away you think of like sitting on a pillow and like everything's quiet and everything's dim lit and you know you have to have this perfect setting to be able to do meditation. And I don't think a lot of people have, you know, the tools to do that, but really it can just be as simple as like taking a minute, sitting at your desk and just giving yourself a minute to be conscious of your breath and your thoughts and what's kind of controlling the situation right now. Um, and I think that if people just kind of looked at it more like, Hey, we're just sitting in whatever position you are or standing or doing whatever, I think people would be a lot less 
intimidated by it, I think. And less and more likely to kind of try and adapt those different and adapt to it for their life. Of course. Yeah. And in fact, I sit up in a, in a, in a chair. I don't make a big deal out of, you know, the crisscross legs and the candles lit. Yeah. (laughs) Because life is impermanent and constantly in flux and the act of meditation is also like we were talking about with being our own advocate. It's an act of acceptance of what is. And so if in your environment there's noise, then it's perfect. It's all perfect. It's, it's, a, it's another frequency of vibration to give your mind space for or create space for. And... Ultimately, when you're meditating, you're, you're refining your five senses. You're clearing away the gunk that, gets in, that, that prevents you from hearing things more cl- clearly, that, help, that prevents you from perceiving life from a, a, a distilled vantage point. You know, so it's like if you have... If you have, if you're driving, and the winch and it's raining, the windshield wipers are meditation. It creates that sliver of of clarity for us to perceive through the glass to keep driving forward. But we don't have to get caught up in the fact that the window wipers are moving at a certain rate or any of that. It's just am I able to see ahead of me or not? And if I can't, then, and in the context of meditation or am I able to see, it's am I able to move forward with a clear head into the next moment? And if not, then I, then I invite myself into taking that breath consciously. I just find meditation to be at least a great tool in my toolbox and I really wish people would take advantage of it. Just like take that minute to yourself. Like it's not, and I think sometimes people have a hard time wanting to take that minute to themselves. Cause they're like, I have this on my to-do list and this on my to-do list and I have this and this and this, I can't possibly put in time to meditate. And I think they kind of lose focus of if you actually took that time to meditate and took that time for yourself and to clear all the gunk, like you said, it would be a lot easier to get those things on your to-do list done. The anxieties are kind of uplifted a little bit and you can kind of, like you said, see clearly a little bit through the windshield. I wish people would just take better advantage of it. So I think it's great that you're trying to bring that to the forefront and have that be kind of the basis of your coaching. Yes. Uh, um, How can people reach you? Are you taking clients right now? Yes, you can find me on Instagram at Chase Mirkovitz. So that's M-I-R-K-O-V-I-T-Z. And I guess what I'll also speak to about meditation is the reason why it's the basis of my practice is because it 
invites you to get familiar with how you're feeling, get comfortable with how you're feeling. And when you're comfortable with how you're feeling or when you are in tune with how you're feeling, you, you can more effectively navigate through your external world, right? Because if you're more aware of how you feel, then you may be more inclined to hold back or bite your tongue when you're not in a good mood and someone triggers you. But if you're just impulsively allowing your emotions to guide you without checking them, then that's where we get in trouble. Yeah, because if you kind of take that minute, you can see if it's really a logical reaction to what's going on or if it's your insecurities or those or anything of that nature kind of guiding you instead of being like, hey, this isn't about me. This isn't about my own personal insecurities. This is how I probably should react. And I think you're right that that kind of gives you that moment to react in a quote unquote better way than you would normally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we will, I'll put a link to your Instagram if people want to reach out to you. I'll put it kind of in the description for this episode when it comes out. So that'll that'll help people get a hold of you too in just an easier manner. Um, so we talked a little bit about you being diagnosed with bipolar in 2014. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? It's totally fine if you don't want to. We just want to dive in oh, yeah. a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm open to sharing, of course. Um, it was such an interesting turn of events because at the time my mom was not doing well and we didn't really know how to get her to help herself. And she spiraled into a manic episode that landed her in a mental health facility for the first time in her life, at least from what I've experienced or in my time being alive, she was never in a mental, mental health facility. And a month later, she landed in a hospital, an ER hospital because she was choking on her food because apparently she was convinced that she couldn't swallow. And a week later, she ended up passing away from choking on her food. And I guess what we would, what we were saying, what, what we've confirmed or concluded is that she had undiagnosed bipolar disorder. So at that time, I didn't know how to deal with that. And I took off for Costa Rica. I made a lot of really crazy decisions. I broke the lease on my car. I ended the lease on my apartment. I resigned from my company and I gave away all my possessions and I moved to Costa Rica after my mom passed. And what transpired over the next six months was i was back in back from costa rica after a month that night i had no idea where i was going to stay my friend and her family took me in for three weeks and after that i was bouncing around at other friends houses for a few months until i was too prideful to open up to my parents about being back and stayed basically on the streets. I was homeless for about a month or so. And 
I was back in my brother's house and then I left and then I was at my parents' house and I was bouncing around and I eventually walked out of the house again because um, I just couldn't see myself moving back in to that environment and taking on orders from my family and it just didn't feel right. And so I walked out and eventually I was, I was brought to a health facility because I was, I was in a manic state. I was dehydrated. I was, um, homeless. I had very little to eat and I was hallucinating and I was delusional and they brought me to a health facility and I was there for a week where they diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. And I didn't really know what to make of it, but for the next five, six months, I was in a group therapy program, staying in my parents' house and going to private therapy for once to twice a week. And I wasn't, I wasn't accepting it. I couldn't accept it. I couldn't embrace this diagnosis and the, the amount of changes I would have to make in my life as a result of it. And, and so after about 11 months, I walked out again and I walked back. I was fortunate enough to stay again with that friend of mine who helped me when I landed back in the States from Costa Rica. And from there, I've just bounced around. I mean, I've been homeless so many times. It's hard to tell. It's hard to count. And all of this was induced by manic episodes, by manic choices, um, and just complications in my brain chemistry. So. I guess it's kind of, at least from my experience, it's kind of hard to kind of accept that there's that imbalance in your brain because you really want to think that what you're doing is the right thing for you and it's the right thing in general and you just really want it to be true and then when you kind of look back at least in my experience it's kind of like you know maybe that was induced by a manic episode or a delusion um i've had a lot of delusional uh impacted decisions um and I think that just kind of really resonates with me about the delusions and everything that you kind of went through and just thinking that, and I think it's also hard when someone's kind of prying at you, like, I know what's right for you. And you're like, but you don't know what's right for me. And you really don't want to believe that they know what's right for you. But sometimes you kind of have to learn to bridge that gap between the two that you do know what's right for you. And it's not all manic delusions kind of pushing you forward. Um, and it's also not everything that the other person is saying is right, but they do have some truth to it. So it's just about kind of bridging that gap. And I appreciate you sharing your story with us. That was really awesome. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I can, you know, I'm glad that you invited me on here to share because this is the first podcast where I'm really opening up about it. 
And like I said in, earlier in the conversation, my relationships are more refined because I have bridged that gap between what I believe and what the rest of the world about, about me believes, which has been extremely difficult to get to. Um, and the process of recovery is extremely difficult because the medications themselves aren't perfect. And until one fits, you don't really know if the one you're using is the one that's right fit for you. At least that's how I'm experiencing it for myself. Yeah, the medications are the various cocktails you can take for mental illnesses is quite interesting and all the side effects that kind of come with them. And sometimes I feel like they all come with like the longest rap sheet of side effects. I know. Like the one that I have, uh, oh God, it's like dry mouth, um, weight gain. And then it has like a bunch of like contradicting ones like insomnia yep. or oversleeping or fatigue or mania. And like, it just like, it just kind of goes back and forth. And it's like, okay, so I could be experiencing this or I could be experiencing this and this might be my meds, but it could like, it's just medications are just so hard to navigate. <laughs> That's yeah. my experience. So you said kind of bridging the gap between what everybody else thinks versus kind of what you think. And I personally am not bipolar, but after kind of meeting and talking with Brett a lot about it, it seems like there is quite a big stigma around it, but there also seems to be a really awesome support group of people around it too. So I guess what's your experience on both sides of that? Yeah. I mean, on Instagram particularly, I see a lot of people who are enthusiastic about breaking the stigma and being a voice for the community. Um, in terms of my physical world and people that I've navigated this challenge with, I've been fortunate to have a, a loving family who understands and accepts me for who I am. And I have a few friends who have also been very accepting and understanding. Um, and beyond that, I haven't had to navigate it, really, to be honest. Um, I don't get people calling me, oh, he's, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't have that issue right now. But I think that's partially because that stage of the journey for me with at least my family was maybe never there. But if it was, it was early on. Um, and they kind of understand me now. I think support groups are kind of, I guess, just having that familial support and those friend supports and just being like, we don't see you as bipolar or like it's not your entire identity. It's just a part of who you are. And I think having those people that see it that way and are supportive in that way is is huge with recovery and keeping you from or I guess us from relapsing, because it's not who we are. We just have this disorder. It's not, it doesn't, it can't, we don't need to have it consume our entire being. And I think that's where a lot of people kind of have the misconception, at least in my experiences, that they'll see me as bipolar 
and that's my entire identity and they'll see me as I guess in the couple of experiences that I've had they just they won't see past the stigma and they won't see past that it's it isn't my identity it's just who I am and how I relate to the world around me and they didn't they just don't give us the chance to show them that and I think that it's huge and great that you have friends and family that are willing to see that yeah Yeah, it shouldn't, it shouldn't define you, right? Nothing, nothing, chemical imbalances in your brain are what they are. That's basically what is the stem of all mental health, right? Whether it would be bipolar, anxiety, depression, addiction, it's pretty much just a chemical imbalance in your brain, right? So that shouldn't define you as a person. There shouldn't really be a stigma around that because it is more common than I think a lot of people led on or a lot of people have believed in the past. Um, and so I guess from that standpoint, that's part of what we're doing here too, right? We're trying to kind of break through that stigma and make it more talked about and more just common knowledge that this, this exists out there and it doesn't define the people. These people get through life and they're human, just like you and me. And this is, you know, how the world is now. So I guess just one final question to kind of wrap everything up here for us. Is there, you know, one kind of tidbit of information or, or piece of advice that you would give people out there that are kind of struggling or maybe possibly wanting to reach out to you to help with that kind of mental health management? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, first and foremost, it would be best to consult with a doctor about whatever concerns you might have and get their input. Then if there's a shock to your system, and how to manage it, uh, feel free to reach out to someone like me who can help you navigate through the difficulty of getting your life um, in order so you can move forward confidently and uh, you know, ha- regain, regain confidence. Um, it, it's, it's so important that we have people who understand us to support us. And, um, you know, as a coach, my thing is I want to see people win. I'm invested in your success, uh, whatever that looks like for you. So yeah, that's, that's what I would say. Awesome. Well, thank you, Chase, for your time. We appreciate your insight and and your work in trying to help those with struggling with mental illness and just trying to keep their day-to-day lives in in check. Um, And thank you, Squad, for turning into another episode. If you have any nonprofit organizations you'd like us to feature or have any ideas for episodes in the future, you can send us an email at gloomsquadpod at gmail.com or on our Instagram at gloomsquad, that's G-L-O-O-M, S-Q-U-A-A-A-D. And we will see you again soon.